rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins, and uh, I've got a special friend today. I've uh, been looking forward to this interview for quite a while. I've been bugging him, trying to get him on uh, social media, and he finally, I twisted his arm, so he's here. No, he's here willingly, not reluctantly. Um, so before I begin, I want to read a little bit of his bio. David Dark. How about that for a name? And I'm going to get into where that comes from here in a minute. David Dark teaches at Belmont University here in Nashville, Tennessee, and he also teaches among the incarcerated communities of Nashville. He's the author of The Possibility of, the, of America and the Sacredness of Questioning Everything. His writings appear in Paste, Pitchfork, America, and Killing the Buddha. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Awfully glad to be here. Yes, 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 yes. So first, I've got to, I've got to ask, were you born with the name David Dark? I really was. Um, <laughs> if I had not been given that name, it would have had to have been invented. Um, I am one of a long line of darks. And I had a grandmother who tried to say that it's French. It's from Jean d'Arc, as if we're from that family. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's true. I don't think it is true, but yes, it's it's my name, David Dark, and I'm very pleased with it. Very yeah, pleased. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great uh, it's a great name if you're a superhero, so you can play with that. I'm sure growing up, you can also do all yeah, author, all kinds of fun stuff. I know that's I know that's got to be an additional reason why all these big publishing houses have signed you recently. They just love I, that it. It is name. Can- it's very catchy. <laughs> so, so right now you're a um, you're a professor at Belmont. I know you have degrees from Vanderbilt. You taught? Did you teach at Vanderbilt as well? Um, I would have done some graduate teaching okay. there. Um, oh, and I did when I when I finished. I did teach at Vanderbilt a mm-hmm. little bit, but I was a high school English teacher at Christ Pres Academy for okay. about ten years. Or I went back to back to school. Okay, great. Yeah, we have some definitely some connections there. Um, where did you grow up, David? What was your? Tell me a little bit about David Dark. Who is he? Um, I am of Nashville. I am one of the rare ones who is actually came from here. Um, grew up in Creve Hall. My um, mother, who's still alive, is a public school teacher. My dad was a lawyer. I went to. Um, yeah, <laughs> to get right to it, um, I went to a segregationist academy, which I didn't think of as a segregationist academy at any point when I was there. But I went to one of those private schools in Nashville that um, was founded around the time that desegregation was really happening in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Creve Hall, went to a, a private school. Um, Worked at a movie theater in Brentwood and um, eventually went to Middle Tennessee State and studied philosophy and and English. I I grew up in the Church of Christ um, and 
Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll get we'll get into yeah. all these. Things. Where, but are you, I, I you have siblings. I do. I've got a brother, Joel, who teaches at Tennessee State. I have a sister um, named Deborah who lives in Nashville, and I've got a sister in Ohio who works for the Kenyon Review. Mm. And uh, so you come from obviously a line of educators. Uh, that yes, that definitely makes sense. I also know that you write. Um, you know, you're you're a philosophy major. You talk. You teach religion. You write about it, but you're not afraid to criticize it either. I, I want to get to that. But okay. tell me about your experience growing up. Was it a religious experience, Christian? I'm assuming in the South here. What what was that like? Yes, I would. Um, it is hard avoiding a cartoonish conception of oneself and others as soon as the word religion shows up. So I'll note that I did grow up very much in a Bible-believing, Bible um, church-attending family um, with fairly conservative values in a lot of ways. Um, I would say that my mom and dad were both evangelical, but I would also note that they both um, voted Democrat, <laughs> never voted Republican. Um, so I would be that same strand, that strange strand of evangelical, maybe a Jimmy Carter evangelical, um, who because of my reading of the Bible, I'm very suspicious of wealthy people, um, I, including myself, that I would say part of the biblical um, witness would note that with great wealth comes flight from wisdom and awareness of self. Um, so a conservative, to, to some extent, afraid of hell background, but also very committed to the public good and very biblically um, literate. I, I did read the Bible um, obsessively for fear of dying without having read it. Um, but I think I also became a real student of language and um always asking what people mean with the words that they choose. Um, so yeah, conservative in one sense, but also Christianity is a kind of peasant revolution, peasant artisan movement or something. I think I had a deep sense of that as well, even though my early conceptions of God as someone who was content with most people <clears throat> burning forever. Um, I, I did need to get clear of that, and I don't want to pass anything like that onto my kids. Yeah, no, I hear you and agree 100%. Um, yeah, that that has to have come. How, how did that come about? I mean, you brought up in a, a religious home that obviously was um, a positive environment in many ways, and mom and dad and private school and here you are on your way to you know to college i'm assuming a, at a, some kind of college prep school there and then all of a sudden where you are today i know and some of your beliefs and some of some of the ways that you've you've grown on your journey did that come through something that happened was it gradual was it just your own kind of journey um you know father richard Rohr talks a lot about transformations coming either through great pain or great love. And usually it's a combination of both. It, was that true in your, your sense, David? 
Yes, I would like to say that I was delivered from certain madness by certain loves. And that's when I can kind of get into pop culture. Um, but with pop culture, I never think that I'm like throwing in a Star Trek reference that doesn't relate to kind of who I am. Um, so I will note that I loved the music of U2. U2 um, struck me as this kind of mystic uh, theater troupe in a way, these bards that kind of came at me. And they were more biblical, it seemed to me, than that which was being successfully marketed as Christian in Nashville in the late 80s and the early 90s. So I clung to U2 as a teenager. Um, but of course, it's always a mixed bag. Probably my late teens, I start listening to Rush Limbaugh. And so I've got U2 and Rush Limbaugh <laughs> are both in there. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing comes out in the early 90s. I'm t and I think one thing that Rush Limbaugh did for me is Limbaugh made me feel strong in my sociology classes and my philosophy classes. So I have very specific memories of um, feeling demeaned for believing in God at all mm -hmm. in particular classes. And somehow, though Rush didn't talk God, he did talk a, a kind of conservatism. But then I would meet people who... Uh, who drank wine, but also loved the Bible. And I, I had to deal with that. Like, am I willing to think of this person as a Christian, even though he, a uh, PCUSA minister in this context, drinks wine? And so you, you, you meet folks and they are patient with you. They are intellectually hospitable to you and they don't um, demonize you completely for loving Rush Limbaugh, for instance. So I would say that it was people, it was community, uh, community of fans, community of scholars, community of just thoughtful folks in Middle Tennessee who um, kept talking to me, even when I was something of a bigot. And goodness, I guess I'm gonna say it just to go for it. People of color who kept talking to me, even though there was a kind of, I'd like to say soft, not fully formed white supremacy within me. Um, so I have many debts to many people who have, um, have kept schooling me, um, even when I was sort of like a, a demon-possessed madman. Um, yeah, does that speak? Yeah. So it was a gradual thing for you of, of people in your life and just them being kind to you and loving you and showing you a different way that just you had to realize that there was something different and I have to have to look at this. Mm -hmm. We can't look. Yeah, we are made to see through good film, good novels, good conversations. And I think it was James Baldwin who said that you can't heal what you won't acknowledge. And so I think I've been pulled into spaces, kind of unofficially therapeutic spaces, and made to see things about myself that I might not want to see. But it's all very interwoven with interest and love. I think it was Claudia Rankin who says that you can't have a realization and feel shut down simultaneously. I think I kind of got pulled out of my shutdownedness, still do, at 50. Um, 
by lots of different people who are willing to talk things through with me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I know you've written a lot about pop culture and you just mentioned it. Can you tell me a little bit about um, that? And, you know, you mentioned you too, in one of your books, you talk a little bit about pop culture, but specifically how it ties in, um, you know, the, what role does, do you feel it plays? Good film, good art, good cultural mm -hmm. pop culture and processing what's going on in the world. And specifically, even now, lament, um, talk to me a little bit about that. What, what was your, your journey into it was your love of music and culture, but where, where has that led you? Well, there's so many strands, but early on it was Steve Martin, who was just funny, who um, sounded a little bit like my voice in a way. I think I started imitating Steve Martin. You borrow from people and you forget that you've borrowed from them. Um, Saturday Night Live, SCTV, um, Doctor Who, lots of science fiction that, that I've loved from very early on. And with any pop culture, you're being pulled into a story. Um, and I think we're always looking for a better, more truthful story um, about ourselves and others. I, I think there's information in my desire to watch Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul or Walking Dead. I, sometimes these things are described as guilty pleasures. I think of them more as information. Why this story now? Why am I pulled into it? So I, I think I did have a conception of self, which was that I was, <laughs> I have a relationship with God that everybody else needs. And my time on earth is to help other people have that relationship with God so that they don't go to hell. Um, that just wasn't much of a story. I mean, it, it didn't really allow for um, viewing other people as interesting if every conversation was me trying to get someone saved or giving them the right information. Um, so yeah, music sneaks up on you. Somebody that you think of as cool, whether it's Bob Dylan or Kendrick Lamar, they, they sneak up on you. And I've just been snuck up on by many artful strangers in, in music and film and all of that. And when you get into Radiohead or whatever, um, you want to get in on the act and become a little more like um, Bono or uh, whoever it might be. Um, I think the thing that I do that's a little different is when I say culture, I'm talking about whatever has been popularly cultivated. So the Bible itself is popular culture. Um, Shakespeare is popular culture. Um, I have some friends in an organization called Culture is Not Optional. And they're farmers and they're educators. And they're just noting that whenever we say culture, we're never talking about something outside of ourselves. We're talking about our clothes, we're talking about our technology. Um, so pop, good pop culture um, has formed me at every turn and has talked me out of narrowness narrow conception of self and others. And I, I really don't know who I am without you 2 without the good music. I have to put the music on 
in order to kind of find my flow any day. I've got to read Richard Rohr as well. <laughs> I mean, I've got to, I've got to meditate. I've got to be attentive. And so for me, pop culture is just one more avenue um, to be more attentive to myself and to get called out um, into a kind of ethical awareness of lives that are very different from my own. Mm. What, um, what role does art uh, play and music, culture, film? What does it play in the, in the part does it play in the processing of pain and expressing lament, specifically in, in suffering communities? Yes. Um, well, in Nashville, um, we have, um, it got criminalized within the last few weeks. I hope this isn't too topical for the podcast, no, please. but we have a, okay, but we have a community of people who are called the Ida B. Wells protesters. And, um, for much of the time during the pandemic, they have been camped out, most led by people of color, but it's a general, um, assembly of folks who want to talk to uh, Governor Bill Lee, our governor of Tennessee, about racial justice, about police violence, about um, funding public education, all those things. Um, he's refused to meet with them, and they've waited for over two months just right there in the plaza. And um, eventually, through the Republican-controlled legislature, they've criminalized camping um, in the plaza. And it is the toughest anti-protest laws in the country, hastened by the unwillingness of our governor to um, speak to them, to meet with Tennessee taxpayers that he doesn't agree with. I mention all that to note that in my time among them, song, um, poetry, prayer, dancing, is a way of enlivening um, themselves, ourselves, when we're tired, when we're losing hope, mm. chants, mantras, all that kind of thing. And there's an energy that comes with being enjoined in good music by with others that is like nothing else in the world. I need it at home when I put music on. Um, I need it to get the dishes washed. There's something about the beat, there's something about the rhythm of it that um, makes me, uh, up, instead of being apart um, from others, I am now a part of them. And I think that the goal is always wholeness. Um, and there's some, there is no wholesomeness without feeling whole. And I, in art, by saying the things that can't be said in other ways, music, by singing what can't be said in sentences or acknowledged easily, calls us to wholeness. Mm. And um, I do think of that as, as the, the, the summons of art in, in everyday life and in communal life. I tend to think there's no community without art. And how do you think, in the context of how you described it, the protesters, um, others that are processing that to, to give them a boost in the midst of um, exhaustion and mourning and pain and consistency, whatever, however that's being used, 
how how do you think it's judged or misinterpreted by those benefiting from the status quo? Yeah, well, there are so many ways to shut down conversation, and there's so many ways to dismember people instead of remembering them. Mm. I think that's kind of the challenge. If somebody brings me, um, if somebody tells me about their own experience and they drop the f bomb or they say something about the police that I sound that I find offensive, um, as a white person. Um, if I'm dealing with a people, a person of color whose life is threatened by law enforcement in a way that mine isn't, I've got to register that lamentation, that complaint. There's an easy offendedness um, that is actually a form of terror, <laughs> ultimately, because it means I'm not um, taking seriously um, someone else's experience. Mm. Um, there's a weird word there. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but prurient, P-R-U-R-I-E-N-T, which is a kind of obsessive, um, easy offendedness over someone else's uncleanliness. To be prurient when someone's being honest about their own experience is deeply inhospitable and, again, is even a form of violence if I'm more offended by the use of the F word than I am by the fact that somebody's been shot in the back seven times. Mm. Um, so, I, I, so there's music, there's dancing. I, I will say that with the Ida B. Wells protesters, when they're dancing, sometimes the Tennessee Highway Patrol, who've been ordered by Governor Bill Lee to guard the Capitol from these people, um, sometimes a toe will start tapping or they will smile or you will see that they're nodding a little bit because they're being enjoined in this deeply human activity, which overcomes um, estrangement and which calls into question the idea of sides and um, you're being violent or you're being disruptive. Um, the power to declare from on high who is and isn't disruptive or who is and isn't a ruckus, is quite the power. And I would say that that's a kind of narration as well. If you have the wealth or the standing to decree who's a rioter and who's a protester, um, that's quite, <laughs> that, that's some, that is a delineation. That's a kind of design. So of course, all art is narration. Narration that is alive to nuance is artful. Narration that is simplistic and generalizing um, is not artful at all. Mm. So I would kind of put that word art there because I think we're all called to be artful in the way we portray the opposition, the perceived opposition, I should say. And um, in the case of protest, it is a celebration to which all are invited. Um, but not everybody is willing to receive the spirit of of righteous um, protest. Mm, mm. Such a such a relevant and timely subject, and I know you're seeing things play out both from a philosophy major and a religion major, and um, living in the South as you and I both both do, having having a little bit of a, a contrary 
uh, position that may be what the majority is to say uh, upper middle class white uh, south um, can be uh, very polarizing and one of the things that uh, I talk a lot about here on on the podcast and with other guests is this need to 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 not be binary and to try the best that we can through these practices that you mentioned is to see another way um, and to try to have empathy uh, for all humans and realize there are no sides in reality. Mm -hmm. It's what we make up in our heads. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Number one, how has that played out in your own life as you try to live in that liminal space and also as you try to teach and educate and write, um, that seems to be a theme as well. Can you unpack that a little bit? I know I just threw a lot at you, but, but help me understand that um, non-binary thinking versus what we see played out on television and, and on Facebook every day. Absolutely. Um, the phrase that I try to use is beloved community. Um, which I picked up from the Reverend James Lawson and from the late Congressman John Lewis. And it appears that that was a, a phrase that functioned in the, um, during the late 50s and early 60s among um, those who were committed to nonviolent action um, against white supremacy or against segregation. And beloved community is lovely because it's non-dualistic. Um, everyone is a part of beloved community in the same sense that everyone is a child of God. Um, Wendell Berry uses similar language when he speaks of the great economy because within the great economy, which is the great oikos, the house that is the known universe <laughs> in a lot of ways, Everyone is a member, but not everyone acts like a member. Yes. And not everyone understands the sacred obligations of membership, loving the neighbor, um, not killing, not bearing false witness, all those things. So to go back a little bit to the Reverend James Lawson, and I've seen this, play, this kind of thing played out in Nashville within the last few weeks. Um, James Lawson has a famous story in which his job um, as a trainer of nonviolent student activists, when they tried to um, enter into the uh, whites-only section of restaurants and demand service, they would, of course, get arrested and dragged out. And the job was to be peaceful even as you're being called racial slurs, even as you're being threatened with violence. James Lawson's job was to remind the students who were at risk of being beaten, both by law enforcement and by passers-by in Nashville, was to remind the students of their commitment to be nonviolent and to remind the passers-by who maybe wanted to beat them up, these students um, are committed to nonviolence. You might strike them, but they will not strike you back. And you're gonna to wanna to think twice about whether or not that's honorable or whether or not that's um, appropriate. In the thick of that, a man pushed through and spat on the Reverend James Lawson's face and called him the N-word, to which James Lawson said to the man, 
do you have a handkerchief? And before the man knew what he was doing, he had taken out a handkerchief and handed it to James Lawson. James Lawson starts wiping the man's spit off his face, looks past him and sees a motorcycle that he can tell because the guy's wearing a leather jacket the guy owns. He said, what kind of motorcycle is that? And the guy said, he told him what it was. And he said, what's the horsepower? And in no time, the man who had spat on his face um, had been enjoined in a conversation about motorcycles. And eventually the man said to James Lawson, is there anything I can do to help you people with what you're doing? Mm -hmm. So beloved community sees the other, even the aggressor as beloved community. Um, in spite of the toxicity coming at them and um, calls that person to see themselves as a fellow human being. So I'll, I'll mention that when James Lawson told this story at Vanderbilt when I was a student, I asked him, how do you become someone to whom it would occur to ask for a handkerchief if you were spat on? And he said, you just have to keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. Mm. Which was just an amazing lie. I wrote it down. I mean, I really felt like I was like someone writing down something Jesus had just said, because it's an amazing line, the imagery of infinite possibility. But I think beloved community is a call to non-binary thinking, mm. where even, oh, and, and I would even say, I think one reason I'm willing to say that there is white supremacy within me, with which I have to contend, is I know that nobody is just a white supremacist. Nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to be a bigot. To love a person is to love a process. To love a self is to love a process. So I think what we're able to bring to our exchanges is that, that deep hope that we can kind of put people in motion again. If soul is anima, then soul is motion, is movement. What does it profit a person to gain a world of security but forfeit their movement. So I think beloved community is a call to kind of keep things moving through jokes, through art, through asking someone, um, could you put that statement in the form of a question? <laughs> Just to see if they're up for it. I've lately thought that one way to approach folks who were afraid might be about to vote um, for more terror. Mm -hmm. is to say, um, could we do a writing prompt? Start this, I used to think, go. <laughs> like if you just ask someone, could you finish this sentence for me? I used to think. And if they say, no, there's nothing that I used to think. I've always thought what I've thought. I want to say, well, can I check in again tomorrow <laughs> to see if maybe your mind has changed in some way? Because the, the unchanged mind is, I don't want to pull the hell back in and say that an unchanged mind is a goddamned mind. But um, there is an, a kind of militant ignorance that if we're not willing to budge in any way at all on any question, I think we are stupefied. Um, I like to say stupefied instead of stupid because I want to make stupid a process rather than a, than a state. And a lot, a lot of people feel stupid. I feel stupid a lot of the time, but then somebody draws me out of my stupefied feeling and I'm kind of able to 
see and flow and get in locked in, in some way. So that's part of what I think the non-binary, non-dualistic vision um, brings us. It puts things back in motion. Yes, yes. And ha have you been able to, you, your example that you gave uh, about the, the gentleman that you heard that gave the example about who spit in his face, um, have you ever heard of Daryl Davis? Uh, he's, he's a guy, he's a musician, but he also befriends uh, white supremacists, KKK, skinheads, and has basically does the same thing. He just talks to them and befriends them. And then he's built his own museum where they hand over their KKK robes, their patches, and he's got dozens and dozens of these from simply engaging with these people like a human being and showing him instead of pushing back, he says, okay, let's go to coffee. And what they find is, you know, oh, you, he says, you say that I'm ignorant, you know, all black people are ignorant or whatever their bias or prejudice is. And then they find that, oh, well, Daryl's not ignorant. He's actually really smart. What do I do yeah. with that? Uh, yeah. Or someone says, well, they're all violent. Well, Daryl's not violent. What do I do with that? And, mm -hmm. and over time, um, like you said, when you're able to see people um, as just another human being, part all part of the same team, and the beloved, like you said, that's a beautiful thing. So, oh, that we would learn. <laughs> yeah. Team wholeness. To yeah. be on wholeness. Yeah. Um, the Jung line where Jung says, the goal is not perfection, it's wholeness. Mm. And um, I think everybody wants wholeness. So Thoreau says that everyone craves reality in one way or another. Mm. And I think that's true. I think even to some extent, extent when people say things that they that on at first blush they're trying to demean me right now because they know that I voted for that person I can I can instead think is this a sneaky way of trying to start a conversation because you yourself would like to talk about this right now but you don't know how to start it um, so there's so many ways to slow the tape with folks and uh, kind of get granular rather yeah. than letting generalization um, sort of drown us all. Mm, that's really good. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, your book, uh, The Possibility of America. What, what, where did that come from? And can you give listeners who may not know about that book or have read it, maybe a brief overview? I sure can. I will note that it is a revised version of a book that came out in 2005 called The Gospel According to America. And I wrote that, and the title, the subtitle of that one was um, something like A Meditation on a God-Blessed, Christ-Haunted Idea. Um, Flannery O'Connor spoke of the God-Blessed, Christ-Haunted South. And um, we know we're God-Blessed. I mean, we say God bless America, but we forget that that's a prayer. Mm. God, <laughs> would you please bless America rather than a boast? And I wrote it um, kind of out of the confusion of the September, following from the September 11th attacks, it seemed to me that a number of Americans started mistaking um, the United States government, especially under a Republican administration, for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And um, I wrote, and it was an effort 
um, to speak against that, not against America, right. but against the idea that America is God's country in a way that no other nation is, and that whatever the American military decides to do is somehow God's will. Um, I was moved by the Barman Declaration um, that came out in the 30s, where they made the distinction. It's like, you know, there's the German government, but Adolf Hitler is not the divine logos. Um, Hitler cannot be a co-lord with Jesus. Um, that was part of Bonhoeffer's point, Franz Jagerstetter, all of that. And I was trying to do something like that during the Bush administration for, um, well, I guess specifically Americans who thought of themselves as evangelicals. I was invited to, um, to revise it in the Trump era. And a lot of the stuff that I said 15 years ago um, remains very relevant. Um, but even within the last couple of weeks, we had, um, goodness, we had Mike Pence say in the RNC convention that we should fix our eyes on old glory, which yeah. is just crazy. I mean, he, he knowingly misquoted, I mean, maybe a speechwriter did it, but that was substituting Jesus with the flag. So it was kind of the same thing over again. And I, I hoped to appeal to people who care about such heresies and who care about such mischaracterizations of, um, of a government's prerogatives. But it's also a love letter. It also lifts up Chance the Rapper, Herman Melville, Fred Rogers. It also notes there's all these American artisans who help us deal with America's tendency um, to go a little crazy. So I would speak of a kind of ghost within America called, and this is a mouthful, forgive me, white supremacist antichrist poltergeist. <laughs> and Walt Whitman, Tony Morrison, Tony K. Bambara, just centuries of novelists, songwriters, playwrights who have helped America with its madness. James Baldwin, for love of America to love America enough um, to criticize it. A little bit like the Hamilton musical, a mm. little bit like U2's Joshua Tree. So the possibility of America is this kind of compendium prayer argument, um, both for the deep value of the Constitution and trying to wrest the Constitution back um, from people who've confused the voice of God for the voice in their heads. Mm. That's good. That's really good. Um, how how has the response been from that book? I know I know you your first edition was out a long time ago, but it's been revised since. What how's the response been? I've gotten some very positive reviews. Um, the old version, Bill Moyers quoted, um, Brian McLaren, all kinds of folks that we like blurb it, but that doesn't mean anybody's going to read it. So it's, it, um, I guess it's been out a couple of years. Um, I get very good feedback. Um, but it's, we live in a age of everything all of the time and it can feel as if it is sunk to the bottom of the internet before it's even had a chance. Um, 
I'm also in this weird place where I don't do the more formulaic, easily marketed as Christian type writing. And it's clearly not secular writing because it's, it is born of a kind of confessional um, faith. Mm. Um, but it, it has been loved by atheists and agnostics and true believers alike. And I'm hoping it'll have a long life. That's great. That's great. Your other book, uh, well, one of your other books is The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. I love the title, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. Is that, first of all, I, I, obviously I'm intrigued, but, but can you unpack that book and where it came from specifically? Yes. I thought about calling it, it was a slightly more obscure thesis early on where I wanted to call it objectionable subject matter and argue that there is no, that all subject matter is objectionable. And the idea that there are some, I'm always trying to open up the space of the talk aboutable to say everything can be talked about. Right. And my agent at the time, Greg Daniel suggested the sacredness of questioning everything as a title to to cover everything. There's a chapter called Questioning Governments, Questioning Media, Questioning Interpretation, just all of those things. And part of my thesis is, yeah, and in the marketing, they wanted to say, David Dark says that you can be a person of faith and question. Questioning is okay. <laughs> to which I want to say, no, I mean, that's nice if you think it's not. But I would argue that you don't actually have much of a faith if you aren't asking questions. Um, an active faith is a questioning faith and a faith that is afraid of honest confusion, scientific discoveries, research is bad faith, is brainwash, is, is a form of um, ideology. Um, so um, it's not really a defense of Christianity. But it is saying that Christianity and the Bible are um, questioning traditions. Christianity is a movement that has put in motion questions, as is Judaism. That's kind of why I want to say beloved community again, because I want it—I don't want it to be sectarian. Um, but I lift up beloved community as a kind of um, school of thought. Um, beloved community is Christian. Um, but it's not uh, exclusively Christian. And questioning is at the heart of it. If we aren't allowed to ask questions, if we aren't allowed to complain, if we aren't allowed to express actually, you know, despair of whether or not God exists at all, I think we've wandered outside of the best of, of sacred traditions. So sacredness of questioning everything was trying to give people permission and note that if the God that you believe in is made angry by questions, um, you might want to move on from that God. That, that might be a God. My friend Derek Webb says that some gods deserve atheists. Mm. And um, that God deserves atheists. That is not a God who is worthy of praise or love or any of it. So, um, yeah, it's, all of it is about all the books in some sense are about critical thinking. Um, but critical thinking, not as an indulgence, but as essential to soul survival. Mm. Mm. Thanks for that. Um, 
you know, it, during this time that we've been discussing, it's obvious that you have a very deep faith that's still there. It has changed and grown and evolved over time. And I have a, I think I, I have a question that I want to ask you that, um, that I think will hopefully sum up and bring together all of these loose ends of this interview is what what breaks your heart about the church that you love? Ooh. Oh my gosh. Is that a question you put to other people? No, no, it's for you specifically. Okay. okay. I have an answer. I have a two-word answer which I can explain. Deferential fear. Mm. The thing where instead of feeling free enough to put two and two together in interpreting, thinking things through, voting, we defer to someone else, something as ultimate as our own ethics, our own conscience, our own spirit. So I think there is, um, I say deferential fear, and then I'll expand on that by referring to the authoritarian mind. And the authoritarian mind isn't Hitler's mind. The authoritarian mind is the mind that would rather defer to authority than dwell in that tension of feeling a pain in your mind that can only be relieved by thinking. Mm. So I think people in America particularly are on the run from that people. I, I guess I'll just say people who, to my mind, are, are in danger of falling for a white supremacist terror movement, hook, line, and sinker, um, are possessed by deferential fear. And I want to help people overcome their fear. Mm. I, I have been helped by people who helped me overcome my fear. And to go back to my mom and dad, the Bible was there. There were some crazy ideas about the Bible sometimes, but my mom and dad did teach me that if I read it closely and studied, I could figure out, not only could I figure out everything the minister knew, but that I'm smarter than the minister. Hmm. That I never, I never need to defer to some man on ultimate things. And so I think that that deferential Fear breaks my heart, and um, where there was once for many a real Holy Spirit koinonia fervor, um, I think folks have traded some of that for perceived power. Um, I've got a little zinger here <laughs> that I want to share with you, but I don't want to mess with your time. Do you have time? Absolutely. Um, of course, the big one, that if you talk to someone about how they're going to vote, the big one is this, this argument that, um, that Democrats want to kill babies right. and Republicans want to save them. I am fine, and I, goodness, I mean, this is way to get to it. Um, you can believe what you want to believe about what women and doctors should do in terms of the abortion procedure. But if you think 
that your desire to bring armed force into that decision where the doctor or the woman will be jailed for that decision. If you think that that makes you pro-life and everyone else is pro-death, that, that is a kind of, to me, a satanic rhetorical weapon. Um, and that breaks my heart because I know that there's people who think that because my mother votes Democrat that she hates babies. Right. People don't say it out loud, but that is the madness um, that I think has made our current state possible. And I think that can be overcome if we can slow the tape. And we can really believe that someone loves babies as much as someone else, even if they don't want to bring armed force into that difficult decision or that tragic decision. Um, so there's the deferential fear. That would be one example of the deferential fear having very serious consequences for the climate, for black life, for all of that. And it's, it is as if the sales pitch of I love the babies and I show that by how I vote and they hate the babies, that that is too intoxicating a myth for people to be willing to let go of it. And I want to try to talk people out of that myth because it's a, um, it's a real killer and it is, um, it is weaponized despair. And um, maybe that's another way of saying deferential fear. I want to talk self and others out of the weaponized despair that seems to be happening in churches across the country. That's great. That's great. Um, I think, I think what you just described and the way you explained that was one of the best uh, explanations. And don't you think too, David, that it's just, easy to go that route it's it's harder to think and to process and to be challenged it's just real easy to say i i don't care about anything else as long as this person is pro-life that's my voting um, sure. choice and so i don't have to think i don't have to reason i don't have to look at other things at other nuances around the whole thing around well what if this person you know, is getting the pro-life vote, but, you know, is anti many other things that you stand for, um, it's much easier to look the other way and say, well, I've checked the box and I don't, yeah. don't, 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 don't reason or don't question or don't show me facts. Um, I just want to sit right here and I know killing babies is wrong all the time. That's mm. it. And that's yeah. it. Don't, don't talk to me about anything else. Don't you think that's an easy just very basic way of looking at things? Yes, and it is escalated because now it is caged children, black people shot in the streets like animals by law enforcement. And it is ramped up to, nope, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. Science doesn't matter. And of course, it's all the mask thing refusal to social distance, refusal to wear, it is a doubling down that is, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. So that's just the one little piece which feels easier, but ultimately it's not easier because there's so much denial. 
there is so much repression. And that's where, to get Bible-sounding, when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, the easier yoke and the lighter burden is the open hand, Mm. is thinking, seeing, listening freely. The deeper burden is denial and toxicity and unprocessed trauma. Mm-hmm. So to go back to the deferential fear, the church that I, I was brought up in, to a degree, encouraged thinking, reading, studying, following the facts where they take you. And it bums me out hard that so much that is advertised as church is the opposite of that now. And is, in fact, <laughs> all due respect, a kind of denial cult. And um, I hate seeing people with whom I prayed and studied the Bible for much of my adult life and much of my teenage children years falling for a denial cult. And um, yeah, it, it is easier to, I don't want to think about it. But that's where we, we do well to try to draw people into book clubs and conversations. I think one benefit of the pandemic, a lot of folks who are not in book clubs um, in February are now in anti, white people, I should say, are in anti-racist book clubs in backyards with people, um, receiving the witness of people of color at long last. And I'd love to think that a real movement of um, the spirit is happening in spite of all of the difficult news that we scroll through every day. That's great. That's great. Well, David, thank you for your time. People want to get in touch with you, read some of your, your content, learn more about you. Obviously they can look up your books on Amazon, but what are the other places that people can find you, connect with you? Well, Twitter, we we haven't talked about Twitter. But Twitter is a kind of public notepad for me. If I read a quote in a book, I put it right on there. Um, so Twitter mostly, and certainly Facebook. I, I accept friendships from strangers who've read my stuff. Um, that's another avenue. It happens that I just haven't really felt incentivized to re-up my website lately. So there is no daviddark.com at the minute. but. Um, the books are available and Googling me, you're going to find stuff. I'm on podcasts. I'm out there. I wrote a thing on LeBron James for Paste Magazine a couple of days ago. Yeah, and I, I, love, I will welcome all manner of uh, contact from anyone who wants to speak to me. Why don't you tease everybody with the title of that article in Paste? Yes, it came from a Beck song. It's, LeBron, it's King James Profanity Prayer. All right, we'll, um, we'll leave that there and let people go and figure that one out. I retweeted, okay. I retweeted it myself. It was so good. So oh, well, I, just thank want, you. I just want to thank you for your uh, vulnerability. I want to thank you for being honest. And what I appreciate about you, David, is you speak truthfully and openly from the heart without, um, you know, so many people in your position um, at a Christian college teaching what you do, uh, where you are, your background would want to hedge their bets a little bit, maybe kind of stay silent about things and not give their opinions. And yet you don't ever hesitate to do that. And I think that authenticity um, 
really comes through in your writings and in the way that you, uh, e even today, you present yourself. And I, I just want to say I, I appreciate that. Um, it gives us courage, um, those of us who do question everything and who do want to maybe change the way they stand on things and they want to grow and evolve, but fear, you know, the response, fear, livelihood, fear, other things, but it's worth standing up for always the truth. So thank you for that. I've been encouraged by so many people and all I can think to do is, is try to act on it. And um, I've been encouraged by our conversation and I thank you for wanting to talk to me and lifting me up. Thank you, David. You have an awesome day and we'll talk to you soon. Same to you. Have a good one. Bye-bye.